listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. So Christ has sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Y'all can take a seat. I'll take the mic in your hand. How about that? All right. Thank you. All right. Now, I think I will take my sermon notes, though. I might need those. Oh, yeah, I left them up here. Okay. There's a real challenge... For those, those of us who've read the Bible for a while, and also those of us who are new, where sometimes you come across a scripture, a passage, and you think, I can tell it's supposed to be meaningful, but I have no idea what the meaning is. And the pickle in a passage like this, you know, it, it assumes that you've got familiarity with these ancient cultic practices of Israel, you got priests and you got sacrifices, you got a sanctuary, and you're like, what am I supposed to do with it? You know it's meaningful, but what's the meaning? How do you mine the meaning? And, and ultimately, what do you do with it as well? The way that the scriptures want to be read is they want to be wrestled with. They want to be asked questions of and chewed on. In fact, if you can picture, I often quote Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of the sinner or sit in the seat of the scoffer, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The imagery of meditation is like a cow chewing on cud. It's chewing and chewing, it's swallowing, it's regurgitating, it's chewing, it's chewing, it's processing through all of its stomachs. And this is similarly how we are meant to read the scriptures. We read them daily we read them weekly and we read them over the course of our lifetimes and over the course of our lifetimes we find that they end up reading us back and putting sense back into the world it takes time to understand to meditate there is a story behind the story in this passage here in hebrews chapter 9 hebrews this book is really rich with allusions that send our our direction back to the old testament and 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 require us to do some investigation And there is a singular story, the story behind the story that illuminates for us the meaning of this passage in Hebrews chapter 9. And to understand it, we have to go to the middle of the middle of the middle of the Torah. 
The Torah is the first five books of the Old Testament. The books often referred to as the books of Moses. We go to Leviticus, and Leviticus is that book that if you've tried really hard to read the Bible in a year, you made it to Leviticus before you gave up your quest. Because Leviticus, it's great, but it's a little bit out there, and you're going to see. In Leviticus chapter 16, God is addressing the people, and he's trying to provide for them a, a means whereby they can come back into God's presence. They've, of course, been kicked out since the rebellion that we see in Genesis chapter 3. There was a problem that hindered humanity from entering into God's presence unmediated. There were two issues that Israel would not survive were they to be in the presence of God. One of those we could generically call their mortality. As we read the first chunk of Leviticus, we read about this strange instruction for bodily fluids and infections and diseases and all these things that, that, that offer signs of death, signs that we are temporal creatures. Our very mortality cannot survive the presence of God. The scriptures say our God is a consuming fire. But secondarily, there's the issue of our morality. We're sinful people. We've rebelled against God. And both our mortality and our morality must be dealt with. The lack of our morality must be dealt with, or the fancy Bible way of talking about it is must be atoned for, for us to be able to enjoy the presence of God again. These things, our mortality and our morality, can't bear the intensity of his presence. They melt away like wax before a flame. And it's for that reason that Adam and Eve had been kicked out of the garden. Now, I want you to pay attention and remember this cardinal direction, that when Adam and Eve left the garden, they headed out to the east. Remember that. We're going to come back to it later. But because ours is a personal God, God wants to be known by his people, wants to have a relationship with his people. God provided this special way where their mortality and their, their, the, their immorality could be addressed. And it happened on one day a year, a day that was very solemn, very sacred, a day where there'd be fasting and mourning and confessing of their sins, this day called Yom Kippur, so known as the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement was the one day a year where the priest representing the people of God would go into the tabernacle and even into the Holy of Holies, that place beyond the veil where only the high priest could go and only one time a year, never uninvited. It was on this one day, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, where the people could be forgiven of their sins. Before I begin to explain what that day looked like, which I think is going to be meaningful for you and maybe even a little bit fun, I want to give one key insight to our relationship with God that's important even in the New Covenant. In fact, it elucidates for us the the significance of the New Covenant. The key insight is there is now for us no unmediated access to the presence of God. No access to God that is unmediated. Now, we understand this in a, in a physical, like, earthly way. You don't just call the President of the United States on the phone and demand an audience. Of course not. You don't just call the King of England and say, hey, I want to talk to you. Now, maybe you could petition up to some, you know, plebeian helper beneath the king saying, please, please advocate for me so I can talk to the king. It's really important. 
Or maybe on some rare occasion, you know, the president might, de might desire to have an audience with you, but in all likelihood, the president is going to go through some lesser authority where they're going to say, hey, he wants you or she wants you to come up into his presence. We understand when you're talking about great power and authority. In our world, there's rarely unmediated access. We always go through someone else. And similarly for us, there is no unmediated access to the presence of God. And on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, God invited the people, mediated through a priest, to come into his presence. And even the priest, as we're going to see, the priest's presence in the presence of God was mediated through the shedding of blood. How did Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, work? Well, importantly, it worked on God's terms, and it might have, it was something like this. Typically, uh, the, the priest would be wearing his, his official robes, which I'm symbolizing here with the stole. That's what it's called, stole. And the priest would look almost like an image of God to the people with a, a turban, with the breastplate of righteousness, with those, those sacred garments that were encrusted with beautiful, precious stones. And the priest represented to the people like these, these images of what it might be like to be in heaven. But on this day, on the Day of Atonement, the priest forsook his, his royal garments and instead put on a simple white robe, which I'm just symbolizing with this towel here. Simple, like white, it's funny, this is in Leviticus 16, white undies that would have to be worn, a white turban that would be worn. And the purpose of it is to symbolize humility in the presence of God. The priest is going to enter the presence of God in the Holy of Holies on this one day a year, you come in humbly. As the Day of Atonement would begin, the priest would come and he would ritually purify himself with water. Ritually purify himself so that his mortality did not, uh, his mortality did not provide an issue. His mortality and his morality had to be atoned for in him coming into the presence of God. And so he took, are you ready for this? A ram. <laughs> and he took a bull. And these two had to be slaughtered. So, sorry, Mr. Ram. And then the bull as well. To address the priest's own mortality and morality, these two had to shed their blood. The priest would offer that and then collect the blood of the bull and the blood of the ram which he would take into the presence of God. Even the priest on this one day, though invited, had to have his presence mediated by the shedding of blood. The priest would take the blood of the bull and the ram. He would enter the tabernacle proper. We've got the menorah signifying the light of God's presence. We've got the table of presence. The priest carefully and humbly walks in, gathering incense and entering into, you too, would you just stretch out an arm toward the middle of the aisle here? There's a veil here separating the holy place from the most holy place. And on this one day of the year when the priest is invited with blood to atone for his own morality and mortality, the priest would enter that ever dangerous place through the veil into the holy of holies. You guys can put your arms down. This lovely piece of Samsonite luggage is, of course, the Ark of the Covenant. <laughs> the 
The Ark of the Covenant uh, contained the, the two tablets of the, the Ten Commandments given by God to Moses, chiseled with the very finger of God. They contained Aaron's rod that had budded and turned into a serpent, manna that God provided daily. All of these were in the Ark. The lid of the Ark of the Covenant was known as the mercy seat where God caused his name to dwell. And upon entering the most holy place, the priest would light the incense so that smoke would go up before the mercy seat. Why did he have to do this? Leviticus says, so that he will not die. With the blood of the, the bull and the ram, which he'd brought to atone for his own morality and mortality, the priest would take the blood and he would sprinkle it seven times over the Ark of the Covenant onto the mercy seat. can't remember if that was seven or eight. The priest would then exit through the veil back into the holy place, and he'd actually exit the tabernacle. And then the priest would take, would need more sacrifices. These represented his own mortality and morality, but now he needed sacrifices representing that of the people. So he'd take two goats. Sorry, fellas. He'd take two goats and did this very spiritual thing which sometimes happens in the Bible, and he rolled the dice. He cast lots to see who uh, determining the fate of each. And on one, Lenny over here was determined that Lenny was soon to be slaughtered. Rick over here gets just a minute. Um, the priest would take Lenny, sorry bud, and <laughs> sacrifice him, gathering his blood that he's going to bring into, back into the tabernacle to atone for the people. Now, importantly, the tabernacle was always situated west and east. So as the priest re-entered the tabernacle, now with the blood of the goat that came from the people and was for the people, the priest entered into the holy place, passing through the veil to the most holy place, and there in the presence of the Lord where one time a year the high priest could come, he took the blood of the goat for the people and seven times would sprinkle it over the mercy seat. But on his way out, he had something else to do. The priest exiting through the veil would now consecrate each of the elements of the tabernacle. With each step, offering blood on behalf of the people, signifying that the presence west, the journey back home to God, to Eden, as it were, has now been atoned for so that the people through the priest could now re-enter the presence of God. For the priest mediated by the shedding of blood, and for the people, the priest uh, contending on their behalf. The priest exits, exits the tabernacle, having sanctified the whole thing, and then now comes upon this last remaining goat. The goat would be taken, and the priest would lay his hands on the head of the goat. And as he put his hands on the head of the goat, he would confess the sins of all of the people, effectively putting them onto the goat. Merciful Lord, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We've failed to be obedient. We've not loved our neighbor. We've not heard the cry of the needy. We've broken the terms of the covenant. He'd put all of the sins of the people onto the goat. And then the goat would be taken and would be sent off to the east into the wilderness, a designated person 
would take the goat, taking it out to the east, where then it would be released. Okay, now this is where it gets pretty interesting. Now, some of your Bibles, if you read Leviticus chapter 16, will say that the goat served as the scapegoat. And the scapegoat, of course, would, would bear the blame of all of the people and be sent out to die in the wilderness, giving us this beautiful image that our sins are being removed from us as the goat is being sent out into the wilderness. Now, that's one translation of it. But if you're reading the English Standard Version or the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible, there is a trippy line in there that you're like, what just happened? said the goat was not just being sent out as the scapegoat. The goat was being sent to capital A Azazel. What incarnation is that? Well, there's an equally old tradition similar to the idea of the scapegoat that Azazel was a spiritual being. Have you ever heard this? Azazel was a spiritual being, the kind of spiritual being that had been cast out or sent away into like the 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 like regions of the wilderness to create chaos and when the priest put the sins of the people onto the head of the goat and sent it to azazel it was like the priest taking the sins of the people and sending it out to the sin instigator it's like taking all of the accusations against the people of God and sending it back to the accuser. It makes us think of, of the, the serpent in the garden. It may, makes us think of the enemy of God, that the sins of all the people, the lies and deceptions that we have believed are being sent back to the deceiver. And when they send the goat out, it's almost like saying, to hell with all of that. That's gone from us being sent out into the wilderness it makes us think of Psalm 103. As far as the east is from the west, he's removed our sins from us. Somebody joked, and I thought this was hilarious, that sending the goat out to Azazel was kind of like taking a, a brown sack full of dog dew and lighting it on fire and setting it on the devil's porch and then ding-dong ditching him and he runs out and the devil stomps onto the crap. <laughs> the people saying, to hell with all of that. It's, it's gone from us. It's removed from all of us. The priest, after this, would purify his hands. He'd go back and he'd remove the simple, humble garments he'd been wearing. He'd put back on his priestly robes. And then, as the people had been watching with bated breath, uh, amazed to see this whole drama that's being you know, played out on their behalf, the priest would come back out to the people communicating it's finished for this year. And then as instructed by Yahweh, the, peop, the, the priest would look over the people and the priest would put God's name on them saying, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Their, their mortality has been atoned for in the most holy place. Their morality has been atoned for as this goat has been sent off to be the scapegoat for them or sent to Azazel saying, forget you. And then the priest puts God's name, invokes God's name to call down peace from heaven on all of them. The people would then break their fast and it would lead to a time of celebration. Now, 
all of this in mind, I want us to go back to Hebrews chapter 9. And I want you to listen to the passage again. Now, Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands. It was only a copy of the true one. They're saying, you remember the tabernacle and the temple? Well, that was just like a shadow. It was like a foretaste of the reality that exists in the presence of God, the heavenly tabernacle. Jesus didn't go into an earthly tabernacle or temple. No, he went into heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Jesus has two unique qualifications that set apart his priestly ministry. Remember, there is now no unmediated access to God. A priestly Ministry is an intermediary ministry. Jesus serves as our mediator. As to mortality, Jesus lives forever, and he doesn't ever need to have a successor. And as for his morality, Jesus is spotless and pure, and he is without sin. For those reasons, what Jesus did, his resurrection, his ascension, and his session, as we talked about Last week, he did once and for all. Jesus is our forever mediator to the Father. But what I really want to focus on is we can picture him going in, interceding for us at the right hand of the Father, but I want you to think about the drama of that moment when the priest would put back on his royal garb and go and bless the people. I want you to think about that as we look again at verse 28. Jesus will appear a second time to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Like the priest in Numbers, having finished his work, Jesus will come from heaven to bless his people. He will come again before us and bring salvation. Salvation is not just some esoteric spiritual thing. Howard Snyder said, salvation means creation healed. Salvation is justice, is true equity. There will never be an end to his government, and we will never have to elect Congress, congressional leaders again. Jesus will cause death itself to work in reverse when he calls his own. Jesus will establish true justice, shalom, and peace on earth. Even like these bodies themselves, which are so given to decay and sickness and injury. Greg, you're going to be out of a job. Sorry, doctors, nurses, healthcare workers, there will be restoration of our bodies. And most importantly of all, we will see him who our hearts desires. Jesus will come to bring true peace and salvation and justice to his people. 
What does all of this mean for us? Well, first of all, it means that in a mysterious way beyond my comprehension, all of the things that you and I have done to screw up our lives, to screw up the earth, to complicate and warp our relationships, all of the things that we have done that are offensive at breaking God's law, all of our sins were somehow like that goat placed on Jesus, and those sins have been sent far from us. We have been forgiven. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, says the psalmist, or repay us according to our iniquities. For as far as the heaven is above the earth, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. What does all of this mean for us? It means that my sins were placed on Jesus, forgiven, and sent far from me. And we say to hell with it. They're gone. The second thing I want to emphasize is that through the work of Jesus, we now have access to the Holy of Holies, the presence of God through Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, Hebrews chapter 4. We do not have a high priest who's unable to, to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet he did not sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace, the mercy seat. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find help in our time of need. Through the blood of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're invited to do what generation after generation of people could never do, to approach the throne of grace with confidence, not just the one time a year when we've gotten our act together, But at all times, Jesus makes himself available to us. The Father is available to us through Jesus by the Holy Spirit. We can approach the Holy of Holies. And the third thing that I would say is that I can now be confident that Jesus will return to more than restore what was lost in Eden. Revelation 22. The angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. There's more than enough for the tree of life. This is one of my favorite verses, top five in the whole Bible. And the leaves of that tree are for the healing of the nations. What does that mean? In the age to come, you get to, I don't know, take a leaf and you go back to that childhood home where all that horrible stuff happened to you. You go back to that city where you've got so much trauma stored up in the streets of that city. You go back to that church. I don't know, rub a leaf on it but the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. God bringing his shalom, more than restoring what was lost in Eden. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb, I never read that. There will be no more nights. They will not need the light of a lamp or of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. 
What does all of this mean for us? My sins are forgiven. I have access through Jesus by the Spirit to the Father, and I can be confident that Jesus will more than restore what has been lost and what has been broken, and things are going to be all the more beautiful for having once been so sad. This is good news for the spiritually bankrupt. This is good news for those who know they don't have the power to help themselves. This is good news for those who carry deep shame about the person they've been, the things that they've done, even just the things that have happened to them. In what way? It offers us a way out. Are you lost in your sin? Are you far from God? Are you given to despair and discouragement about the state of things? How are we invited to respond? One, it's to confess our sins to God to place them like the priest put his hands on the goat, to place our sins on the Lord Jesus and trust that he will remove them far from us. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us, and he will purify us. He will forgive us. We're off the hook for having done it, but he'll also purify us from having the intentions of wanting to do it in the first place. We're invited to confess our sins. Second, we're invited to trust that like the goat taken to Azazel or this being the scapegoat for us, that Jesus has taken the sins away from us and he wants us now to draw near to the Father through him. That Jesus coming and representing his Father was advocating for our homecoming and invites us to have a third response, which is to abandon claims on our own lives and to submit ourselves to Jesus as our Lord and King. He already rules as Lord and King over all creation, but he invites us in the present age to willingly bow our knee to him and learn to live under his rule. And all of it tees up what we do on the other side of it. What do we do? We wait, but we wait in hope for the day when Christ appears again to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. And that tees up so perfectly the movements we'll be going through in the coming weeks as next week we start the season of Advent. And in the season of Advent, it's not just a countdown to Christmas where we remember his first coming. We also yearn and pray for his second coming. And we repent, we, we, we confess our sins, and we ask the Lord Jesus to come and do what he has promised. Let's pray together. Lord, I think in this moment of uh, scriptures say that gospel is the, the wisdom and the power of God, but it feels like foolishness to those who are perishing. In some ways, from a worldly perspective, not you know, considering the work of the Holy Spirit, the sermon just feels like a complicated book report. But somehow this truth, the wisdom, power of God given to us through signs and symbols, through priests and sacrifices and tabernacles sets up this reality that is beyond our ability to explain in what Jesus did in his incarnation, that somehow in his life and ministry he was inaugurating a kingdom of which we were invited to be a part. In his death and resurrection it was somehow vicarious, it was for us. That my sin, it was my sin that held him there. And you invite, again, beyond our comprehension, us to trust that somehow this was for me, to atone for my sins, that I could approach the throne of grace with confidence. Lord Jesus, I pray that the people of your church, 
will be ever eager to confess our sins that we may be free from them. We renounce you know, the work of the enemy in our lives. We reject the lies the enemy speak over us. And we embrace that through the blood of Jesus Christ, we are adopted into his family, made co-heirs with Christ, citizens of the kingdom, given the gift of the Holy Spirit, a foretaste of, of what's to come when Christ returns. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you give us the grace to truly trust in you and to see that through to bowing our knee, to declaring you Lord and pledging our allegiance to you as king. I pray that you will establish your kingdom among us. The evidence of it would be Sermon on the Mount kind of living in your church, that we would be people who love our enemies and bless those who persecute us, that we would restrain our anger, We'd live disciplined lives, not giving over to lusts and appetites that have gone awry. That we'd be men and women who speak the truth, who show mercy and care for the poor. Who don't try to seek vengeance, but strive for reconciliation as far as it depends on us. Pray, Lord Jesus, as we come and receive communion today, I pray that you pour out your spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. Fill us with your Holy Spirit as we eat and send us in the power of your Holy Spirit to be ambassadors for the kingdom as we go. This we pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Everybody said, amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.